Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so um, it's a real pleasure to have um, uh, Ajahn Chandigo with us. Uh, as I said, his uh, monastery is uh, the Vimuti Buddhist Monastery uh, south of Auckland. Uh, Jane and I visited there a couple of years ago, and uh, it's really a, a beautiful place that he's... Uh, helped create out of uh, out of some very raw land uh, that turned into magically this uh, it's quite extraordinarily uh, you can see all the work and the love that uh, that has gone into it and uh, uh, Ajahn has been a a monk uh, in robes for 27 years now yeah and uh, yeah, he knows a thing or two about Dhamma, and it's been it's been really uh, great to spend some time again with him. So um, uh, please, will you share the the Dhamma with us? Okay. Thank you. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami. Thank you very much, James, for inviting me. It's always good to be back, good to see you again. Uh, pleasure to be here, and uh, many thanks to uh, the monastery who are hosting us. You know, we've always had such a warm relationship with the city of 10,000 Buddhas and, and their Sangha, so you know, we're really uh, uh, very appreciative of all of their support. As James was saying, I normally live in New Zealand, but uh, my family is here in the U.S., so that gives me an opportunity to come back to California every year. Every year I come back, then uh, I... Uh, I'm, I'm able to see the new developments in America. And there's always new things. New Zealand is kind of, you know, you got sheep, you got land. <laughs> you've got a lot of space. You've got a really good, solid, down-to-earth, grounded population, but not too much of them. And, uh, but it's fairly stable. Come to California, it's like, wow, everything's new. Get to learn all the new uh, gadgets, the meditation, technological gadgets. <laughs> this is something we're not trained on in the monastery. So uh, this morning, James very, uh, very delicately places band on my head and uh, got a readout from my meditation this morning. Uh, do you remember the? Do you remember what the readout was? 
You, got f- you did very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I just I I, I was impressed. <laughs> there there's this uh, this new gadget called Muse. Anybody ever try Muse? <laughs> and uh, it, it just it reads out first. It calibrates your thoughts and says think about sports or desserts or and it says okay this is the mind thinking and then uh, now. Watch your breath or whatever the instructions. And when you're here, it's calm. And when you're starting to drift into thought, it says the the wind stirs up. And when you're very present, sweet birds in the background. He he got a lot of birds. Yeah. It was good. I think it it works. The the meditation. I I know know about the muse, but I think the meditation works. Anyway, very well done. I think I passed. What was it? I had 1% thinking. Yeah, Yeah, out of the time. 78% peacefulness? Something like that. that. Anyways, some neutral and then maybe 1% thinking. But I knew I'd be tested, so I was really trying hard. Pressure was on. Yeah, it was like, all right. It's like someone watching your mind. You know, so the, now the, f- the first range retreat that I spent in Thailand, I, I stayed with the Ajahn Chah disciple who had the reputation of being able to read people's minds. And that was kind of fairly well documented. And I was a newly ordained monk and uh, going to his monastery. And then they put me in the hut right next to his hut. Because I'm the only Western monk there. They put me in the, so he, it's like he could watch me 24 hours a day. You know? He'd be in his hut, but I just had this feeling like he could be watching my mind at any moment. Right? So not, that is a real motivator to keep your mind in a wholesome state. You know, be, medi- <clears throat> be meditating, you know, you're just a young guy meditating, you think, oh, don't think of that. <laughs> Ooh, don't think that, he might be watching. Nope. It was like, mm. so it's a bit like this, this band, you know, gives you a, it's like checking up on you. So the lapping waves, and then you start to think out of control, and it, what, it turns into a hurricane or something like that. It's like, it gives you feedback. So coming to California then is an uh, uh, opportunity for, to connect with old friends, to make new friends, connect with the monastic sangha. Um, just came down from uh, 20th anniversary of our Abayagiri Monastery, a branch monastery in Northern California. That was an inspiring event. Uh, it's always good to get back with. Um, you know, in, in New Zealand, monks are pretty rare. You know, there's not a high population, and, and uh, monks and nuns are very rare. And so to come here and be surrounded by uh, a monastic sangha, um, yeah, it was very heartwarming. It's like getting together with our, our uh, family. So. Uh, in a positive sense. <laughs> and I also get together with my actual family, so that's good. And um, it also gives me the opportunity to practice in solitude for uh, a period of time. For the last 10 years, I've had this piece of property in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is uh, 12 acres of just redwood forest. Uh, and so it's very peaceful, very quiet. And I just go there every year and stay in a tent. Because the monastery in New Zealand is kind of a big operation. You know, 150 acres, many buildings, people coming and going, many events. So it's, it's nice and uh, 
it's important to be able to take the opportunity sometimes just to simplify. Just go stay in the forest, reconnect with the roots, literally. You know, stay in the forest, in a tent, no big building projects, um, and no other people. I can just survive on, on uh, alms food. I'm able to go on alms around to a local a Tibetan retreat center who are incredibly supportive. So, uh, so it's about as good as it gets, really. And these days, it's just, it's difficult to live a simple life. It takes a concerted effort. It's not like you just kind of go with the flow and things are kind of relatively simple. It's if you go with the flow and things are very complicated. Everything's pulling us into complication. Even in, even in a monastery, you think, well, you just think, oh, life's too complicated. I go to Buddhist, mono- Buddhist monastery. Try building a Buddhist monastery. Well, it gets pretty complicated with modern laws. So, so then uh, to take that conscious step to say, at least for a period of time, I'm going to simplify. Or maybe how, look for ways that I can simplify. And often it means saying no to good things. Because there's, you know, and for us, for example, as teachers, there's just endless opportunities to do good things and to help people. And yet finding that balance where you actually have to say no to something which is, is, is good and you want to support. And just say, no, I just... Simplicity is also a very good example. Um, so that's, that's something which is, is beneficial, beneficial, it's rejuvenating, but also uh, it's helpful to have a few examples in our complex society of people who are actually living a simple life, especially if it's for a, a noble purpose, like practicing the Dhamma. So that gives me an opportunity, at least uh, a little bit, to, to be able to uh, really get in touch with nature, because nature really is our, our primary teacher. Practice really then comes down to, to everything we do throughout the day. When we're living in a tent, not... Uh, with very few external demands, even if it's just for a couple of weeks, and it pairs life down to its basics. And in the monastery, we, we practice in the same way, and as a young monk, we have very few uh, responsibilities, which are then gradually heaped on us as we get older. But initially, this training in mindfulness, this training in, in uh, developing awareness, we use everything in daily life as an opportunity to meditate. It's easy to say, make everything into meditation, or everything is meditation. But once you start to understand the, the actual principles of being centered, balanced, understanding um, uh, how the mind works, observing the movements of the mind, then uh, you know, we, it's hard enough to do that when we're sitting still with our eyes closed. So then we gradually work into walking back and forth, you know, and with the eyes open and the movements of the body, you know, and uh, more potential for distraction. And then gradually integrate the simple activities uh, that we do throughout the day. Right? There are simple activities that we do, such as uh, brushing our teeth. Hopefully we all brush our teeth at least once a day. And so during when that time when we're brushing our teeth, then... We could be planning our future. We could be, 
You know, what are we going to do that day? If it's in the evening, we could be regurgitating or rehashing what's happened throughout the day and the conversations. And, but actually, we could just use that time as meditation as well. The same principles apply. Okay, thoughts arise, but just coming at it from the perspective of, okay, well, there's a, instead of just getting sucked into the thought, you know, making that little effort, okay, can I just be aware of the, the movement of the arm, the sensations of the brush and the teeth and the gums, and, and then a thought arises, future plans, you know, memory of what happened in the day, and say, okay, well, you know, I'm aware of that, but then can it come back? You know? And uh, it's probably more hygienic that way as well. You do a better job. So then, you know, if we can, if we take these little snippets throughout the day, you know, they gradually link up because it's so easy to say, oh, I'm just too busy to meditate. And it's so, it's easy to justify that. And I think we all do it, including myself. So then it really becomes incumbent upon us to say, well, then I, I really need to learn how to make these daily life activities into the meditation so we can develop wholesome states of mind throughout the whole day in some way. Right? And that's re- that is really possible. Um, if we uh, look at things from a different perspective uh, sometimes, so sometimes uh, it's just a matter of um, maintaining that, that part of the mind which is able to observe, hmm? establishing our awareness in the body is very key. It's so easy to get lost in thought, um, uh, feed that uh, refined intellect and, and information processing aspect of our lives that sometimes we forget, all right, I have a body too. Right? And so just being uh, grounded in the body, paying attention to the sensations in the body. You know, this is basic. This is really um, mindfulness 101. You know, it's basic Buddhism is, you know, like the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, when you reach, when you reach out to pick something up, you know, if you're thirsty... Right? If we're not mindful, well, we reach out and we pick it up, we drink, and we may be thinking, we may be looking, we may be checking the phone. Right? But it doesn't take any more time to recognize there's thirst. Okay, I can do something about that. You know, reach out you know, consciously. We're aware of stretching the arm out, aware of the weight of the cup, aware of the feeling in the fingers, aware of gratification. Aware of gratification again, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, it, even something as simple as taking a drink of water somehow is transformed, and can bring us back. You know, I mean, there's plenty of things in the world in our daily life that are more difficult to do, but we can definitely start with these very simple things: you're brushing your teeth, washing, drinking, and uh, there's no reason why we can't, you know, use apply the same principles that we, that we use in sitting meditation to picking up a cup and, and drinking. And, and that just has the effect of, of uh, bringing things into balance. We just really feel the sensations in our body, feel, feel more grounded, more centered. And when that happens, when we have this body awareness as our anchor, then when thoughts arise, we more qu- quickly aware. It's like, okay, that's a thought. It's not like thoughts are our enemy, but... If we're just a slave to thoughts, there's all these motivations happening constantly, and if we're not aware of them, life's just out of control. And uh, we're really kind of functioning just on automatic, and it's usually not, it's not necessarily an automatic that is beneficial to ourselves or others. 
So being grounded in the body, then you become much more aware of, oh, you know, what mood am I in? You know, how do I feel? Uh, what's my reaction? Uh, there's this thought. Is it a useful thought? Memory, some you know, thought can be useful, but sometimes, um, sometimes it's just rubbish too. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> just repetitive rubbish that, that is actually agitating to the peace of mind that's naturally there, and, and it, it's not helpful. Now the reason why we tend to think on and on and on is some part of our mind thinks that that's going to make us happy. You know, the mind's going to always incline towards happiness. And if we don't give it enough information, it's going to seek happiness in the same places that it thinks it's going to get it, even though it's not working. Right? I mean, you've got how many billions of people in the world? Almost all of them want to be happy, and yet look at how much suffering there is in the world. Look how many problems we create. Right? It's not because we don't want to be happy. It's just because we're not aware enough of our surroundings, our other people, our own thoughts and moods and motivations, we're not clearly aware of that. So then, of course, we make choices based on anger. We make choices based on um, greed. We, we definitely make choices based on delusion. And so the only thing we can do is to start in the beginning and try to get a, a clear assessment of the way things are. And that happens in degrees. It's not like you're either mindful or you're not. We all have some mindfulness all the time, but, but we can, you know, unless, we're, unless we're passed out. But, but then trying to refine that, you know, then we start to see all the subtleties of our moods, the subtleties of our motivations. And, uh, and, we, and, and it can be very instructive, you know, sometimes a bit uh, shocking. So I didn't realize, didn't realize, you know, that I had these kinds of thoughts. I didn't realize that, you know, I was, you know, this is such a strong desire. You know, but then, you know, it takes a certain amount of courage and integrity to kind of stick with it, you know, moment by moment, activity by activity. And then, like Ajahn Chah would say, these, these moments of mindfulness throughout the day, then, you know, as you open the tap, they, uh, instead of just drops coming down, you get, you know, more frequent drops of mindfulness throughout the day, and eventually, if we keep practicing, it becomes like a stream. So that from the time the, we wake up in the morning, you know, how, time we wake up in the morning, how long does it take before we realize, are we breathing in or are we breathing out? How aware am I? Uh, can, I be, can I establish any mindfulness before the first cup of coffee? Or do I have to wait only? Oh, oh, oh. First cup of coffee, then I'll be mindful. But as soon as we're able to start and then maintain it throughout the whole day, right to the time we go to sleep. And then when we do sit down to meditation, do, when we do sit down to meditate, we don't have this huge backlog of things that we've been grasping onto and, and, and churning over and, and holding uh, throughout the whole day. We're kind of processing and letting go and staying centered and, and not being pulled out. And so that when we do sit down to meditate, then... It's much more easy to go to go deep. So these are things which, you know, I can I can practice everywhere. But somehow, you can give me a little time alone in the tent, surrounded by nature, and uh, somehow it it helps. You know, we we are we are influenced by our environment. We can't help it. 
So if we have a choice, we don't always have a choice, and we try to do the best we can anywhere, but if we have a choice, then it's helpful to place ourselves in environments which are going to be uh, conducive or supportive of those mental states or the type of lifestyle that we aspire to. So it's like when you wash the bowl, when you wash the dishes, when just walking. You know, I mean, we do a lot of walking, so why not say, you know, as soon as we get up and we walk to the door, you walk to your car, this is our time for walking meditation. It doesn't mean you have to do it in slow motion. Other people might find that irritating. <laughs> but, you know, if we, you just apply mindfulness. You say, oh, am I aware of my body while I'm walking? You know, am, am I aware of the contact of, of our feet with the ground or the floor? Aware of the movement of the arms? Hmm? Aware of where we left our shoes? Aware of anything we might have forgotten in the hall? And, you know, then that really makes a huge difference. Mindfulness is not the be-all and end-all of practice, but you, you have to have a very strong foundation in this daily life practice for the deeper uh, aspects and insights of the Dhamma to be able to take root and take hold. And, you know, it, as we meditate, we'll become aware of all of these obstacles that are arising in the mind. Generally, insight will go as deep as the, uh, the level of our samadhi or the level of peaceful, calm awareness. Right? Samadhi, samadhi has to go hand in hand with development of mindfulness. And generally, if we, if we have continuous samadhi, it will, if we have continuous mindfulness to some degree, to that degree, then our samadhi is also trained simultaneously. It's like samadhi in action, but then when we sit down and maybe we, then we have fewer things to focus on, it's like the samadhi can really go, go more deeply. Right? And when we're meditating, there are these, there are these obstacles. You know, uh, the Buddha tends to classify them in terms of five hindrances, uh, but generally we can see that there are these, these obstacles to peace of mind. What is it that moves the mind? that takes it away from its natural place of being centered and balanced and aware, and clearly aware. Right? Sometimes it's dull, sometimes it goes into frustration and anger, sometimes it goes into sensualities, uh, there's confusion, regret, uh, the whole gamut. And as long as the mind is being influenced by those things, it's impossible for us to see clearly. This is just the, the nature of, of how the Buddha defined uh, insight and wisdom and delusion. I mean, we can't help it. We are, until we are fully enlightened, we, we have a lot of delusion. And the part, of the part of the nature of delusion is that we don't see our own delusion very clearly. It's difficult to see delusion. It can be easier to see when we're angry. You know, it's easier to see when we get upset or, or you know, we can get some perspective on that. You know? But delusion is... is it's like fish swimming in water, fish swimming in dirty water. You, know, it's, it's, um, you just get used to it. You don't realize, oh, there's actually uh, different ways of looking at things. So as long as, as, long as one of these hindrances in meditation are functioning, it's impossible to get real insights. impossible. We can always learn something. I mean, we, could be, we can be full of anger. And we can still learn something. We can learn valuable lessons. 
but we have to remind ourselves, I'm still not seeing things as they truly are. And that's just a good reminder, because we tend to think, especially when we're angry, <laughs> that we are seeing things as they really are, and why can't that other person see them? You know, it's very obvious. I'm seeing things as they truly are. So these are, these are you know, things we have to work with in daily life practice. In the monastery, um, as you try to live a simple life, then you start to realize everything starts to come up, right? And uh, you don't need, you know, big events, you know, to, to uh, bring stuff up. Sometimes it's just little things. Come back from alms round, as a junior monk, it's your duty to wash the feet of the senior monks. I used to come back and wash the feet of Ajahn Pasano. He was my teacher back then. He's the abbot of our monastery now. Wash the feet of Ajahn Pasano. Oh, so inspiring. Wholesome states of mind arise. Oh, I'm giving. You know, it's like uh, it's a service and generosity, offering my time, offering humility, washing someone else's feet as they come back from going on alms round. They go barefoot. And then, uh, but then down the line, you think, oh, well, this guy's not so wise. You know? And... <laughs> And then he, you he say, "Well, it doesn't really matter. It's impersonal, you know. It's like it's good, it's good practice. I'll wash his feet too. It's fine, fine. I'll wash his feet too." And then he makes some kind of, you know, arrogant comment, and you think, mm, you know, feel the blood pressure raise. You think, okay, now we're really practicing, you know? All right? And this is how you you start to get some emotional strength, some inner strength. Yeah. It's one thing I notice when I come back sometimes. There's, you know, I see people that I love, people that I care about, people who are often very competent um, and together in, in most of their lives, and, but then they can have an emotional fragility. You know, I'm often surprised, um, mainly with people who aren't practicing the Dhamma, um, you know, people who are you know, intelligent and, and successful, and that, but you know, one little thing goes wrong in their life and they can be thrown into... Anger, frustration, one little, one little, little bit of criticism, and they just kind of crumble. I was like, "Wow, you know, I don't know if it's due to kind of an underlying level of stress that people are just kind of fending off, and then as soon as there's one little crack or one little, one little thing goes wrong in the daily schedule, and then it just kind of it's like the last straw and kind of puts people over the edge." But Dhamma practice. Uh, trains you for that, so that you're, 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 you have this inner strength. You know, something happens that you like, fine. You see, if something happens that you don't like, fine. Right? Someone praises us, the fine. Right? It's just sound. Maybe I can learn something from it. Someone criticizes us, say fine. It's just sound. Maybe I can learn something from it. Right? And then. Uh, everything that happens, you know, part of the mind is kind of observing it as we're acting, as we're living, and then, um, you know, pleasant things happen, uh, things we like happen, uh, gratification happens, 
But then the opposite happens as well, and that's also part of life, and it's not necessarily good or bad, but you know, sometimes we don't get what we want, it's unpleasant, it's uncomfortable, uh, mentally painful, emotionally painful, we lose things that we want. Um, people criticize us. You know? What does that do to the mind? You know, people criticize us. How dare you? Do you know who I am? Which is a great, great one, especially if you're a Buddhist monk of a thought. Do you know who I am? It sounds so ridiculous. So it's like, well, we're not actually anyone. So. <laughs> Do you know who I am? Well, no, actually, I don't know who I am either when it comes right down. <laughs> there are things I identify with, but, you know. So. You know, if you ever experience that emotional fragility, then think, well, maybe, maybe I could incorporate some of these uh, daily life practices to create this inner strength. It's like training so that when we do get into more difficult circumstances, then, you know, we, we practiced. You know, we're kind of ready. And so and we, we, we may feel it's, something's pushing our button, but, you know, someone's pushing our button, we kind of feel the potential reaction but we have a perspective on it. We're not, just, we're not just living like a robot. Someone pushes our button and we react. That's a robotic life. Right? Someone pushes our button and then we can choose how to respond. Even if we feel the rising of the emotion, that's totally normal. Right? It doesn't just disappear because we're mindful. After a while, it gradually disappears. So then you develop kind of inner strength. And then that can be applied to more and more complicated situations. You start with brushing your teeth, but then when you get good at that, you know, then uh, and you've got conversations with other people or multiple conversations uh, or intense conversations and dynamics and pressure. And it's like, okay, you know, there's all these levels of activities within our life that we can gradually train for. You know, start with the simple things and gradually... You know, you're in the midst of a conversation, you're trying to listen carefully, you're mindful of what other people say, mindful of what we say, mindful of our reactions as other people speak, mindful of our own thought processes, you know, before we speak. There's a lot going on all the time. So it's never boring, right? If you take this as a practice, it really makes life interesting and... We, we give ourselves more information. We just start to see moment by moment actually what's going on here. Now, I mean, we all project a reality, but we can, we can project a more and more <laughs> realistic reality by, by watching very carefully. And then naturally the mind will incline towards happiness if we give it the proper information. Naturally, the mind will incline towards making wise decisions if we give it enough information. If we don't give it enough information, if we only look at one tiny sphere or or, or, uh, um, line on the spectrum of reality over and over again, then that's all the information we have. And of course, we make our decisions based on that, and of course, it's going to be only that accurate. So it's very simple daily practice. It's very powerful. And it's just some, something we can keep refining and refining and refining all the time.
So there are these many things which then uh, assist the development of wisdom, the development of insight. And if you want to develop good samadhi, very strong inner concentration, unwavering mind, then um, go sit through an ordination at a Bayagiri monastery. <laughs> we just had one on Sunday. It reminded me of Thailand. So on Sunday, Sunday, you know, the temperature temperature was like a, it's well over a hundred. This is up in. And a Bayagiri monastery up in the, well over a hundred. And uh, Ajahn Pasano said, well, we should hold the ordination in our new hall, uh, which is unfinished and no air conditioning and kind of loose insulation around. And most of the windows had to be closed because you didn't want to blow the insulation around. And, and so in the hall... You've got the stifling air, and it's very hot, very, very hot. And, and then I said, well, what time should we have the ordination? He said, I think directly after the meal. It's good. So we have like one meal a day as our big meal of the day, right? This is like, this is it. You know, after our big meal a day, it's like, all right. Well, let, yeah, let's hold the ordination right after the meal. When we're the most sleepy, you know. You know, right after, sleepy, it's incredibly hot and dripping with sweat, um, and uh, there's no fresh air really. Um, the ins- little things of insulation are floating down in my hair. <laughs> right? And then Zyajan Pasano is very, very good at explaining every detail of the, of the ordination. So in Thailand, the ordination might take, say, Half hour, 45 minutes tops, even with a bit of Dharma explanation. Um, this ordination took three hours. John Pasan was very meticulous in explaining every little detail. Right? And so the rest of us, we're just sitting there. You know, this is, and you, know, you, you can't, you just sit still. <laughs> you know, you just sit still, and, and if you don't have an active part in the ordination, you're just sitting still and aware. Mm, heat, uh, stay awake, you know, awake, you're aware of drowsiness and you're trying to bring up energy, uh, staying awake, alert, upright, grounded in your body. If you start to get into distracted thinking, you're likely to fall asleep, so you're kind of aware of your body, it takes a lot of persistence, staying with it over and over and over again, thoughts come up, saying, geez, you know, in Thailand it's only half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, well, so it's just a thought, it's just a thought, come back to the body. You know, you know, you're feeling sensations in the body, sensations of intense sweating, sensations, <laughs> intense sweating. You think, oh, how can I put a positive spin on it? Oh, it's just like Thailand. Ah, it's, it's just like Thailand. Great. So, and, uh, and it is kind of just like Thailand because, you know, often we develop samadhi or persistence beyond the level of what we would push ourselves. You know, we, we're forced into situations where we would never do that to ourselves. <laughs> you know, we, you know, as soon as it starts to get too uncomfortable, we you know, say, well, this is, this is you know, unreasonable. Right? But 
we're often placed in what would seem to be not unreasonable situations, but situations where we wouldn't choose to you know, sit there sweating hot for three hours. And, and you can't kind of fidget. Everyone's, you know, you're up there in the monks. So you're just quiet. You, know, you can't start falling asleep. Right, you can, but it doesn't look very good. <laughs> so you know, awake, sit still. You imagine the kind of discomfort that starts to arise in the body, you know, after an hour, two hours, definitely by three hours. You know, you're just aware of discomfort, aware of pain. Again, this is one of those things that daily life practices, which is really powerful and gives us a lot of inner strength, is when we are able to be aware of physical discomfort and not react or aware of our reactions. Aware of physical discomfort, instead of labeling it as pain, uh, instead of just trying to get rid of it or avoid it, then just notice there's physical, those are sensations. Is it pressure? Is it sensation? And the longer you sit, this becomes kind of a dominant practice. You forget about the breath. You're just paying attention to the discomforts in the body. The knee starts to become painful, the ankles, the back. And, and just sticking with it as sensations and not judging them as wanting to get away from them, hating them, or if that arises, then noticing, oh, well, that's just a conditioned reaction I have to discomfort. To, you know, even, we don't even have to label it as pain because that is a, already has a negative connotation. You know, that concept will bring up a negative uh, reaction. So just noticing sensations, and sense, intense sensations, and, and then uh, and just kind of sticking with it and keeping the interest. This develops a lot of inner strength, which we can apply to physical pain and illness, but also then to mental pain and illness. You know, when things become painful emotionally, or we start to experience grief, we have this training, like visceral body training, that the body and the mind remember. This is... And and uh, and we then transform our relationship to how we how we experience pain, both physically and mentally. So these types of very you know earthy practices, you know, that you wouldn't think that sitting through an ordination in Northern California would be anything special. It's just a ceremony, right? We you know what's so spiritual about a ceremony. But, you know, you approach something like that from a Dhamma perspective and you realize, well, there's a lot of wholesome states of mind that are being uh, potentially developed in just these simple everyday activities. One of the things which is also um, maybe not emphasized so much as a cause of wisdom and insight is devotion. Right. I'll give you an example. About six years ago, uh, at our monastery in New Zealand, there, was, uh, there were people on our committee who said, let's build a stupa, you know, a monument, big one of those beautiful monuments, stupa chedi. And at the time, there were a lot of other buildings that were more practical, that we, we needed. In a stupa, I was like, well, it's more like the, maybe like the, the icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the frosting once the cake is complete. But f- for valid reasons, um, 
people really wanted to have a stupa, and I thought, well, okay, well, well let's take this on. And we started this whole process. And um, I surprised myself, I was surprised that, that the whole process uh, was very inspiring. Because a stupa is a monument that will hold the uh, relics of the Buddha. And we designed our stupa so that it was chock full of, of, of loads of stuff. I mean, the, uh, we began with a time capsule underneath and we gathered things from the whole community to create this big time capsule that was then welded shut and placed deep in the ground and, and covered with concrete. And then on top of that, we created different levels and inside the stupa was... Um, uh, the entire Tripitaka, uh, the, the Buddhist Theravada Buddhist canon, was um, printed uh, both in Pali and English, uh, uh, durable paper, and then uh, welded shut in these very large polyethylene plastic boxes, so they're airtight and watertight, and um, the essen- essential teachings of the Buddha were inscribed in granite plaques, big granite plaques that, uh, you know, in very refined detail. Uh, so, Every aspect of this process was just very, very inspiring, uh, even with the normal hiccups that you have with building projects. Um, just tend to bring out something. And, and you wouldn't necessarily think that, you know, what's the relationship between devotion and developing insight? It's almost like they're mutually exclusive. You, know, you say, well, you have the more devote, devotion-oriented practices, but then you have the more, you know, the wisdom-oriented practices and liberation practices. And you, know, you think, well, if you have the choice, well, yeah, of course, I'm going to take the wisdom practices. That's what's really important. But then a situation like building a stupa, you realize they're not mutually exclusive by any means. It, it was uh, uh, the whole process brought up so much joy. And joy, of course, is a, uh, an indispensable factor of awakening. It's one of the seven factors of awakening. And... Uh, the, most of what we do in our practice is the, the gradual development of character. We Insight and liberation is about, is about uh, the mind seeing and going into that which is unconditioned, not beyond the causes and conditions of either our personal uh, existence or our surroundings. But you can't just jump into the unconditioned. Right? So actually the, the great majority of what our practice entails is about developing and sustaining and perfecting wholesome states of mind, uh, which essentially is, is character building. You know, we, we, we develop uh, a stronger, more wholesome character. And, and doing acts like this, surprisingly, create a very strong foundation then for deeper states. That's just joy. Uh, when the mind is happy, then the mind concentrates easily. When the mind is concentrated, then insight flows more easily. Right? And then uh, this devotion kind of, uh, started, uh, came to a peak this summer because about six months prior, or maybe nine months ago, we, we heard that uh, the head teacher of our tradition Ajahn Sumedho was going to come for a visit. And this was a surprise because uh, he's quite old now and you know, it wasn't expected that he would be traveling around the world. So that was a great opportunity. We thought, well, we still haven't finished the stupa. Maybe 
we should finish the stupa and take that opportunity to enshrine the relics. So we, we did. And through the whole summer, it was like uh, building up to this week of when Ajahn Sumedho and, and, and that same monk that I mentioned before, Ajahn Biak, the one who you know, could kind of see your mind, he was coming as well. They were going to both be there together. Very special week of Dhamma teachings and practice, which would all kind of culminate with the ceremony on Sunday, uh, which would then all culminate with putting the relics actually inside the stupa. So, in order, just a little background here, in order to actually get the relics inside the stupa, you know, we had to think, well, how are we going to do that? It's in the top of the stupa, right? And it's kind of shaped like this, so you couldn't just lift it up. And the relics themselves were in small vials, which were then in, in, in stone uh, containers and stone um, small stupas about this big, which were then was in a stainless steel box, and then that stainless steel box was filled with uh, clear crystal chips. The stainless steel box was about this big, completely filled with crystals, and then that box was then welded within a larger uh, polyethylene plastic box, so it's airtight, completely airtight and watertight. By the time we were finished, it took four of us to lift it. It's really heavy. You know, so was, you know, four of us lifting it could, could just barely carry it. So then we had to figure out how we're actually going to get it up there. And through our research, we got a uh, the normal cherry picker wasn't strong enough or high enough or didn't have a long enough reach. So we finally found a heavy-duty one, a big hydraulic arm that would go up. And, and we thought that we would, uh, we would have a professional operator the whole time. We'd have a professional operator who would come and uh, we'd have the relics, the professional operator, myself and maybe, you know, Ajahn Sumedho up in this basket. And Ajahn Sumedho and I would just sort of ceremoniously push it in. And then, because it's such an expensive thing, we couldn't rent it, you know, to practice with it, you know, prior to that. So it came one day, you know, before the ceremony. And uh, we took it up with the operator, you know, we thought we'd have myself and the operator and the relics, and we realized that when it started to get close and extended out, it was too heavy. You know, it exceeded the weight limit and wouldn't wouldn't actually reach. So then, I realized I'm going to have to operate it myself. It would, certainly wouldn't hold Ajahn Sumedho and I and and the operator there. So so. While all this was going on, I was going to run up the stoop and start practicing with this because all the controls were in the basket. So we still didn't know for sure if this was going to work. But I had a sense of, you know, it's like, well, this is the culmination of six years, a pract- culmination of this week of practice, culmination of this day of ceremonies. And then uh, when the time finally came, then we had all of these all these visiting monks around, chanting, gradually going up in this. And then, uh, uh, as we're getting close, you know, the the machine's not that refined. You hit a little toggle switch and kind of bounces. So then, finally I got in the right position, I was pushing it in, and then it got stuck. It was just a bit, the angle wasn't quite right. I I thought, well, we need the basket high so I can kind of push it down but then it kind of gets stuck. And then 
It was halfway. It was, halfway. It was no longer safely in the basket, but it wasn't in the stupa either. It was just kind of halfway in the air, you know, kind of balancing one end on either. Um, and I thought, well, actually now I need to support this and then reach up here. And there's this whole, like, range, you know, the... The dashboard is just this massive toggle switches and knobs, <laughs> which I had mastered, you know, in the last 24 hours. And it's like, and so it's kind of, well, you know, I think it's this toggle switch. Because if I hit the wrong one, if it went too far back, if it went to the side, down, then the whole box of relics, seriously, would go bouncing down the side of the stupa <laughs> and potentially land on Ajahn Sumido. <laughs> Because he was right there in the front, right? So I was, you know, you're up. It's amazing how the mind works. So I'm up there alone, and it gets stuck. And I'm like, and uh, I realized there are people around who would like to help me, but they can't. And the Sangha can't help me, and they're all chanting. And it's taking a little while, and I keep chanting, guys. Keep chanting. <laughs> they were, they, would, they wouldn't stop, you know, as long as it was going on and, and then, uh, as it was, as it was, as it got stuck, there was this moment of of panic, you know? and uh, it was feeling like, God, you know, it could it could actually fall down, crash down the side of the stupa, land on Ajahn Sumedho, and for the next fifty to a hundred years, any time my name was mentioned, <laughs> you know, monks who were ordained fifty years from now, they said Chandiko. Isn't he the one who killed Ajahn Sumedho? <laughs> he the one. Yeah, he killed. Yeah, he's the one who killed him with the relics. That's right. Yeah, bad karma. Bad. So, so these kind of thoughts are going, and and uh, and the little like, kind of feel the physical signs of panic, you know, blood pressure ra- rising, and kind of, and then. This is like the culmination of 30 years of practice. Then, then part of my mind said, no, that's just a thought. <laughs> you know, that's this, the, the scenarios of killing Ajahn Sumedho with the relics and, and the embarrassment, it's the panic of not being able to find a solution. I said, no, that's just a thought. And then it felt like I had this choice. I could panic or I could remain calm. And I think in this circumstance, it's, it's probably more useful if I remain calm. And I could just kind of see the mind turning away from the panic and choosing calm. And says, so okay, now what do I need to do here? And, so, and, then, and then I could more think more clearly, yeah, which is the right toggle switch to hit? I'm going to reach up and, okay, I need to lower this and twist. And, and so I did that, and the whole thing kind of goes, boom, bounces. And then, uh, but then I was able to, you know, Push it in a bit more, got stuck again, and adjusted it again. Finally, push it all the way in, and it's a big sadhu from the crowd. And uh, it, it just seemed like a fitting, dramatic conclusion to these years of devotion, kind of devotion, whether it's uh, to the Buddha or to our teachers, and kind of culminating you know, in this, and uh, somehow very intertwined in that moment with all these years of developing mindfulness of mental states.
So there's something else that happened recently that I want to talk about. When I was uh, traveling here, traveling from Thailand, I had to go by stages. I went to from from uh, from Thailand to Malaysia to Bali to um, eventually on to California. And while I was in Malaysia, getting on the flight to Bali, then uh, I'm sitting in the the gate and. Uh, a Chinese woman came up, a Chinese-Malaysian woman came up, and uh, she looked a bit distressed. And sometimes when you dress like this, it tends to be an invitation uh, to attract people of all different types. And so this woman sits down for me, uh, and uh, she says, what's the meaning of life, Bhante? <laughs> and it was one of those questions which is so vague to be almost meaningless. So, you know, I kind of well, give a general answer. But then she was, she was persistently annoying. And, and I, you know, I could kind of see this annoying arise. But you know, it's like, just be patient, be kind, answer questions and explain things. It may not be the ideal circumstance for teaching Dhamma, but... But uh, then it was time to board the plane. I was very relieved. Great. Go and, because I was kind of tired. I'd go and find a seat. And, uh, and where I sat down, something didn't work in the seat. So then just before takeoff, I said, is it okay? There's all these empty seats back there. Is it okay if I switch my seats? Air, air, you know, the attendant was like, yeah, fine. So I went back. And then, and then this, this same woman said, Great, and she sat and she sat down right next to me. She said, "Bonte, may I ask you more questions?" So I realized for the whole flight this was going to be what I was up against. So okay, all right, good opportunity for developing patience, kindness, and and you know as she's talking, it became more and more clear that uh, she was uh, distraught. She was very unhappy with her life. Um, she was she wasn't that old, but she was. You know, she was concerned. She was so ugly. She'll never get be in a relationship. Her job is meaningless. It's exhausting. Um, her family is disharmony. Has, has disharmony. Kind of has disowned her. She doesn't really have friends. Her life just seemed, you know, she's going on and on about how how difficult her life was and how much pain she had. And and you know, I was empathizing and supportive and and uh, opening up. Um, and then we were talking about, okay, well, what's she going to be doing in Bali, and and um, how long are you going to stay? And she kind of gave kind of vague non-answer. And uh, as I was watching her and tuning into her, I, I started to put the pieces together. So wait a minute, I think she's actually going to Bali to kill herself. All right? All right. And kind of initially, I was like. You know, initially the thought arises, but then as she's talking and I'm kind of tuning into her, it's like, and then I finally said it, hey, are you going to Bali to kill yourself? Huh? And then she, you know, she's crying and, you know, it's like really, uh, it's very intense, you know, because that's what, that was her plan. Or, you know, she had, she had ended and tied up all these things in, uh, in Malaysia and she, she loved Bali. And the people there, 
and uh, was just had made this very conscious decision that she was going to go to Bali and and um, and and die there, you know, commit suicide. So then I was really interested, you know, um, you know, really, and it wasn't like I tried to convince her not to do it. I was just really interested and said, "Well, let's talk about this. What are the, you know, are there other options? Um, have you re- cons- have you really looked at it from many different angles? Um, uh, you know, you're still young. You know, there's all these variables that we discussed." And gradually, you know, she was, you know, she started to feel better and, and, and better, and we were kept, just kept talking the whole flight, and finally we get to Denpasar in Bali. And um, by that time she was, you know, was actually, she was feeling a lot lighter and a lot better, and, you know, we're walking through the airport, and she's starting to smile, and we're laughing and joking a bit, and, and, uh, and you know, finally I had to go on into the uh, uh, transit lounge, and um, you know, we took a took a photograph together, and she was all like radiant smiles. So, to this day, I don't know if she's still alive. But if uh, her name was Kimmy, you know, so if she ever hears this Dhamma talk, maybe contact me. Let me know if you're still alive. You know, and it may be the case that just having someone really listen and care had changed her mind because she was kind of, I'll save this picture, you know, just really radiant and happy when we left. But um, we don't know how long that lasted. So then today, California enacted this, um, enacted this law, what's it called again? End of Life Option Act which then is a legal avenue for people to consciously make the decision to end their own life under very limited and and strict circumstances. But then it brings up this whole question of, uh, especially from a Buddhist perspective, now if you choose to end your life, what kind of karma do we make if we do that? Now, Sometimes we talk about kama in uh, very simplistic terms, you know, and that's useful in certain ways. We say, well, you know, careful about hunting and killing animals, it's bad kama. Right? You're stealing and lying, careful, it's bad kama. But the reality is kama is very nuanced, and every moment we, are, we have a mix uh, of, of intentions, Sometimes our intentions are wholesome. Sometimes our intentions are, are unwholesome to certain degrees based on selfishness, based on irritation, uh, certainly influenced by delusion. So we're always making a mix of wholesome and unwholesome karma. And then you get into a situation of like, well, should I take, if, if I was to take my own life, what kind of karma would that be? And uh, you have intention, but then you have motivation as well. And they can be different things. The intention may be to kill, but motivation is a power, powerful mitigating factor. 
So we may be motivated to kill ourselves out of uh, despair, out of anger, out of self-hatred. Right? And then that's going to carry a much more heavy negative impact. But we also might be motivated to end our life through a conscious, peaceful decision that you know, uh, is just not worth the consequences of, of carrying on anymore. Particularly if we have a terminal disease, maybe we've had a wonderful life already, and uh, we don't expect many quality years ahead, or we've been diagnosed with a certain disease that uh, doesn't have a, a, a long life expectation. Maybe you, you know we're starting to experiencing the the beginning stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. So then, you know, the the motivation may be very different. It may come out of um, caring for oneself. It may come out of caring. Uh, uh, compassionately for the people around, you know, the family and friends who would maybe n- no longer be subjected to to uh, looking after one in one's older years. So it tends to be a, a, a complicated um, karmic situation where it's not it's not accurate just to say, "Well, that's bad karma," or on the other extreme, that um, not paying attention to it, saying, yeah, "It's my body." I can do whatever I want with it. Right? That's also an extreme that is not totally accurate. It's not really our body. It's just part of nature, and we identify with it. And other people have a lot of attachment and perception to this body and the, the mind that goes with it. So that's all part of the, the, what we have to take into account as well. So it's not either extreme. But in the middle then, it's, there's, there's a, a real soup of of intentions, some of which are are wholesome, some of which based on delusion, some of which maybe um, just wanting to escape, and then each case is different. Now, we had a situation like this come up with um, our teacher Ajahn Chah, and this. Uh, it's increasingly complicated when you have to make the decision for another person. And with our teacher, Ajahn Chah, he initially got ill, um, but then gradually, step by step, was degenerating. And he had said in the beginning, kind of like, oh, you know, don't, don't put me on life support, or don't, you know, not a specific statement, but, you know, don't worry about me. Just let me die if I get sick, or something to that degree, something to that effect. But then at every step along the way, you find yourself in a moral dilemma. I was explaining just this evening, as, for example, there was one one time where Ajahn Chah was was suffocating. He was suffocating, and the doctor was there wanting to do a tracheotomy. And at what point do you say, no, just let him die naturally? Because then in the, in the moment, you know, theoretically you can say, oh, don't, don't uh, apply any life-sustaining uh, procedures to keep me going. Just let me die. But then there's your teacher, kind of suffocating, body heaving, and the doctor saying, look, we can just, just allow me to do a tracheotomy. And he'll, he'll survive. And then, of course, you want you say, 
Yes, go, okay, go ahead, do it. Right? And then stage by stage, you know, every stage you, you're, you're faced with these dilemmas, which are, are you know, you're make, we're making karma by every decision that we make, everything we do, everything we say, what's our intention. So this then becomes a, I mean, death and how we relate to death is something that affects us all. Um, uh, especially when we, we have an... I mean, there are many times in life where we may consider, you know, should I end my life? Right? You know, thinking of this woman. Is she, it's easy, is, it would have been easy or simplistic for me to say, no, don't kill yourself. No, that's bad. It's bad karma. But it was much more realistic to say, well, what are the specific circumstances in this person's life? How is she feeling? Um, really, uh, you know, pay attention to how much pain this person must be experiencing in order to have come to this conclusion. And, you know, she was set to carry it out. So there are times where uh, we have to make a decision where we're willing to take on certain negative karma for other reasons. Like for killing, for example. There is no way that we don't receive the karma for killing. If we have the intention to kill, whether it's to kill others, kill ourselves, then there is that intention. And if we follow it through, there will be a karmic result that comes from that. Right? It's not that that is absolved through circumstances. But there are times where we might be willing to take on the negative karma of a particular act for what we might perceive as a, a greater good, what we would judge as, okay, beyond this line, it's worth it. So, again, one uh, situation of uh, a relative dying, you're faced with this dilemma. What do you do? Yeah. Where, where do you draw the line? Uh, and making the choice to end someone else's life or... What does it mean to die naturally, anyways? Right? At some point, we just stop giving them the, the nutriments for survival, and then they, they will die. Once the causes are taken away, then the results happen by themselves. So, there are, you know, these are types of things that we sometimes talk about in our um, monastic classes, because in the Vinaya, you know, we have to know where exactly the line is drawn. So as a monk, for example, if I would uh, recommend or encourage suicide, I say, yes, it's fine, yes, it's good, then, and then the person went through with it, then we would automatically cease to be a monk because one of the four, first, four major rules you know, is, is killing another person. And then you know, how do you define that? If you had an active role and what you said, and sometimes giving advice to someone is powerful, and they take it, they take the advice, and then you had a, you, you played a role in someone killing themselves, and then uh, we would automatically cease uh, to be a monk because it was considered karmically very powerful. But then, if you're not a monk, you know, you know, what would you do? in a situation like that. And generally with death, it's good to think about these things before you die. You 
know, it's good to think, think about these things well ahead of time before we're placed in those situations. So we practice. It's like training with emotions. You know, if you daily life training with emotions puts us in a position where then when difficult and powerful situations arise, we have a foundation, we have a training, we have a context to put it in. And then it's challenging, but we have a basis there to be able to rise up to it and meet it. And so death is like that as well. Contemplating death regularly is one of the things that the Buddha always encouraged. Not in a a depressing way, but just in a realistic way. Puts our life in context. Puts what we do in context. How, you know, if we... We don't know how we never know how long we're going to live. So we think, well, how how wise am I spending my time? These things that I'm doing today does it really matter that much? Or these things that we're upset about does it really matter that much? So it, it helps that way. Put things in perspective, and then we we're able to place our 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 priority. We're able to place our energy with the things that are really high priority in our lives. So I know this is a very important topic and I want to leave some time for questions um, because um, dealing with people who are dying and, and uh, especially with situations that we're talking about are very individual. You know, each circumstance is completely unique. So um, I'd like to hear from anyone else on this. Yes? Here, we can... Uh, thanks, Andrew. But they, thank you. You had mentioned uh, put it put it like this. Uh, that's it. Early in the talk about every creature wanting to be happy, is it possible that over a long period of time, years, decades, that just being in a very stressed out state or thinking about almost everything as a crisis or being sad, over time we get a we can get to a place where that becomes a safer state where we want to withdraw to. N- not being wanting to be happy, but just choosing, uh, wanting not to be happy because that feels, that's the one thing that we're familiar with over a long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If a situation is familiar and we're used to it, then it will have a, an illusion of being safe and easy. And then even if we know it's unpleasant, if we know it's suffering, we'll still be drawn to go back there. Yeah, absolutely. That's why you see people stuck in terrible life situations and you think, why don't you do something? It's because at least it's familiar. Because going into the unfamiliar can be even more scary because you don't know what the alternative would be. So that would be an example of a being not actually trying to be happy. It can come from a variety of different motivations, um, but but certainly it would. Uh, I mean, people, if you get used to crisis management as the norm, then we we get used to that level of adrenaline stimulation, or you, we think we're really useful. We're doing really, even though it's. It may be really useless or not that important, but it feels really important because it's a crisis. Then when we don't have that crisis, it feels like 
something's wrong, something's missing. Right? So it's a very unnatural balance. And we're all, we're all looking for, for happiness. Right? And we just fool ourselves sometimes into looking for it in places that are really the wrong place. I've been a critical care nurse for several decades, and um, we have that high crisis place all the time and have been with many people dying. And at the point often where it's a big dilemma to choose, can I give them some medication to relieve some of their pain, but then that might be the point that's going to kill them. So you have a lot of... um, I, at least I myself, often have these Dharma questions with that kind of patient. The patient may be at a point where they're saying, um, I don't want to continue with treatment or whatever. But then you still have those moments that are quite um, karmically and emotionally challenging. What words of wisdom can you give me in that relation? <laughs> well, like anything, we just try to keep our mind in a wholesome state, you know, and and intention, motivation, this is the essence of karma. So if you wonder, what kind of karma am I making in this? Well, look at your mind right then and there. Right? They'll give you, a, a, that's a doorway into understanding what, kind, what the effects of this karma will be. Right? Am, I, am I motivated by fear? Right? Sometimes, sometimes we can put down an animal because we're, it's uncomfortable to see the animal old. Uh, it's it's it uh, we're somehow it strikes fear. We act out of fear, and if we are, then it's usually not going to be a good result. You know, we can't see clearly, you know? um, or if we're acting out of compassion, right? Or what? It, well, what is compassion? I mean, we are we empathizing, really empathizing with another person or another animal's suffering and pain and what they're going through, not what our projection is. You know, but really trying to understand what, what, how does it look from their perspective? What are they feeling? And, and that will, that will be much closer to real compassion. And then if we act from that, we can be much more confident that the results will be good. And it would be, just be a lot more peaceful, right? You know, you just so many situations like that. If our self gets in the way, sense of self. You know, if we, if we, if we feel uncomfortable seeing someone else um, in discomfort, then it, it's really more our problem you know, than theirs. You know, can we just get ourselves out of the way and just really be there? How does it look from, how do they feel? Right? That's good practice for us. It's powerful for us. But then that's, the, that's the, probably the most accurate way that we can make decisions and most powerful way that we can help them. So um, perhaps we should uh, end it here and uh, thank you for your attention and patience and thank you for your sharing. Um, Always nice to have you here, Bhante.
So we can just uh, quickly do some loving kindness and dedication with all these complex situations and questions. Uh, may we see clearly into the highest motivation for our actions. May we see through confusion and fear to act from love, compassion, clarity. May we um, experience the highest happiness and peace. And may our coming here together ripple out and be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Be well. See you next time you're in town. See you next year. Okay. It's a date. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.